Hello and hello and welcome. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Shambles. This is producer Trent back in the familiar role of uh, pre and post show announcements this week. Once again, Helen Chersky subbing in as host on Science Shambles while Robin is currently in New Zealand with Professor Brian Cox on their world tour. Tickets for that are available uh, from Brian and Robin's website, so check those out. Should also mention, if you are listening to this episode of Science Shambles, on the day of release, Monday, June 17, we are doing Science Shambles live at the Royal Institution tonight. There will be a few tickets available on the door, so come on down for that if you are in London. Helen Chersky, Lucy Green, Susie Gage and Linda Cremonisi will be on that show. And then we're back at the RI on the 26th with Helen doing a talk about her blog series from her time on a research mission in the Arctic uh, at the end of last year. So check that out. Lots of other events and blogs and podcasts to check out on CosmicShambles.com. One of our new bloggers uh, joined the site this week, Tanya Brown. She is a health researcher, medical researcher at the University of Stirling. Her first post about autism and addiction is on the site now. And if you missed the announcement uh, about Book Shambles as well, we're doing Book Shambles live at the Royal Albert Hall on July 7th. Robin and Josie will be there hosting with some special guests. The first, which we have already announced, is the brilliant Reginald D. Hunter will be there with us. So go to the Royal Albert Hall website or cosmicshambles.com for information about that. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. But enough of that. Uh, on to this week's episode with Helen chatting to Marcus Chown. Do we agree? Is This is a voting. We've got 2-0 for starting the... <laughs> oh, two, <laughs> two thumbs up. OK, all the producer people agree that we can start the podcast, which is a great thing. Hello, uh, welcome to Science Shambles. I'm Helen Cheresky, standing in for Robin Ince while he's off swanning around the world with Brian Cox on tour. Um, we think he's all right. The last time anyone saw the two of them, there was a little video of them having a bit of a fist fight on a beach. And the tweeting made it sound like that was a fitness lesson. But, you know, they've, they've been going on that tour for a while now. I wouldn't be surprised if a few tensions... Had uh, have been coming out. The cardigan has come off. Anyway, so Robin's not here, so I'm hosting this week. And with me in the studio, I've got Marcus Chown, who is a writer, a science writer, who's written lots of things, particularly about cosmology and physics and the universe. And I asked him just before we got in the studio here how many books he'd written, and he couldn't remember. And in this case, uh, he has written so many that I believe him. Uh, but he has a new book out. It's called Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, which sounds uncomfortable to me. But anyway, um, Marcus, it's lovely to have you here. Um, what have you been up to recently? You, have you just been writing this or have you been doing other things as well? I've written another book, actually. Um, you might, it might, might seem as if I'm prolific, but once when I went freelance, I, was, I worked on a magazine, I went freelance, uh, it took me about four or five years to write a book uh, because <laughs> every time I, I had to keep doing journalism to, to pay my gas bill. When I went back to my book, it, uh, you know, I couldn't remember where I was. So I vowed that I would never take more than a year to write a book. So that's why 
I've probably written quite a few books, and I'm quite grey. You can't see that, right. so that's that's why I've written a lot of books. Uh, we're reaching uh, Jackie Collins' level of levels of pr- prolific writing here. So. Oh, that was a good face. <laughs> you, podcast listeners, you missed a treat then. Okay, so um, so we've got infinity in the palm of your hand, and and the nice thing. So you know, we both write about physics. We both think about. Both of us think that people don't talk about physics enough, and that there's all these interesting things that are not scary big out in the universe stuff um and the thing that i liked uh when i had a look through this was that you take a really nice kind of lateral look at connecting things together and that has given you on the back of the book and just inside the cover all of these really nice odd connections that you know have something to say but you wouldn't necessarily expect the connection so so tell me a little bit first of all about where that why do it like that well, I mean, I, I'm amazed, like you probably, that, that we, we live in this incredible universe, which is which is much more amazing than anything we could possibly have invented. So I've, I've you know, pulled out some, some hopefully attention-grabbing facts, which will grab people's attention uh, and sugar the pill so that I can then explain some, you know, hopefully deep science. So things like, you know, you could fit the human race in the, in the volume of a sugar cube, and that allows me to talk about quantum theory. You know, that if you replace the sun by bananas, it wouldn't make much difference. So let's, uh, I like the bananas one. Okay. Let's just okay. have this thing. There's something about the sun. You could make <laughs> the sun out of bananas, and it wouldn't make any difference. Now, at least it would be yellow. But <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Nothing to light it with, but it would be yellow. Okay, yeah. tell me, dig, well, dig, pick, unpack that. Okay, for well, me, really, really, I'm just saying, well, you know, why is the sun hot? Uh, and the sun is hot for an incredibly simple reason, because there's a lot of mass. And it's all that mass, uh, you know, bearing down on the core, gravity squeezing it, that, that squeezes the, the, the centre of, of the sun. And when things are squeezed, they get hot, you know, just like air in a bicycle pump gets hot when you squeeze it. And the temperature at the centre of the sun is, like, I don't know, 15 million degrees. And at that temperature, matter dissolves into a, an amorphous, anonymous state known as a plasma. And it doesn't actually matter what that matter is. You know, uh, the sun is something, I can't remember, it's something like a billion, billion, billion tonnes of, of, of mostly hydrogen gas. It's a lot of billion, that's the But if you've got a billion, 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 billion tonnes of microwave ovens or a billion, billion, billion tonnes of bananas and put them in the, in one place, you would get something as hot as the sun. Because so hydrogen fusion is particularly efficient, right? Because you've got a nice big energy gap between hydrogen and helium. So does if you if you made if you had a sun that was mostly made of carbon, would you, I, mean, yeah. I don't know the suns. You tell I'm me. I'm not actually talking about what, why the sun stays hot. Right. I'm talking <laughs> about why the sun is is at its temperature because you've actually put your finger on it. And the reason it stays hot is because as fast as it loses heat, it's replenished by as you say the nuclear reactions. But basically, the the temperature it has is maintained by those nuclear reactions. But the temperature it has is determined pretty much by its mass. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is, you've obviously put your finger on it, uh, why does it stay hot? And in the 19th century, people in, a, in, a, in an age of uh, steam uh, naturally thought the sun was a chunk of coal, you know, maybe the, the, you know, the mother of all lumps of coal. And it was very easy to work out. You know how... what the best thing about that is? The idea that there must have been a really, really big planet with dinosaurs on it and all the things that make coal <laughs> squash down into a tiny planet. So yeah. anyway, carry But anyway, on. it was possible to work out you know, if you had a giant lump of coal more than a million kilometres across, uh, you know, h- how long could it burn before it, it burned out? And the answer was about 5,000 years. 
And even, even, you know, even Archbishop Usher, who was an Irish bishop, he calculated the age of the universe from, um, you know, from, from the Bible. Even he thought that the Earth formed in 4004 BC. There were some really interesting calculations, weren't there, back yes. then? Like they, they, kind of, they didn't know about fusion, and they did do very sensible things, considering they thought about, well, the Earth might be cooling down, it might be losing... You know, there's all yeah. these, they thought these sensible cooling calculations, given the thermodynamics that they knew. Yeah, so you, you, you think Lord Kelvin... Uh, William Thompson. I mean, he he worked. He did exactly that calculation, and he worked out that the sun was something like th- it couldn't be more than thirty million years old. Now, of course, the geologists had discovered even in the previous century that, that I mean, you went to places like uh, uh, the, the Madeira, and you found you found fossil um, shells at ten thousand feet up on a mountain. So you know. You inferred that the mountain had been beneath the ocean. No one sees an, uh, a mountain rise in a human lifetime. So it was very obvious that the Earth had to be at least tens of millions of years old. And then, of course, Darwin comes along and he says that all life evolved from a common ancestor by a process of natural selection. And we don't really see, I mean, obviously, we see back now we can see bacteria uh, evolve in a human lifetime. But we don't normally see species evolve on, on human timescales. So even, even uh, Darwin knew that the Earth had to be billions of years old. And, of course, now from meteorites, we know that it's about four and a half billion years, uh, years old. Now, that, that is a million times older than the the if the sun was a bit of coal that that, that estimate so that tells you that whatever is powering the sun is a energy source a million times more concentrated than coal and and as you said in, in at the beginning uh, we discovered in the early 20th century that only nuclear power could do that so it's i mean the, the great thing about these things is that you start with a statement that is sounds a bit weird that gets you to interesting places so we'll keep going down these statements because yeah. i quite like some of them um <laughs> so the third mushroom explain the third mushroom one to me well, I mean, as I've just said, uh, Darwin, you know, postulated that all life had evolved from a common ancestor by by a process of natural selection, uh, and uh, life is based on, on on DNA, and 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 you know we share a third of our DNA with mushrooms, and that shows that we had a common ancestor. Incredibly, there is a piece of DNA that is in every one of the 100 million million cells in your body and in the cells of every other creature on Earth and even some viruses we, we don't even consider to be living. So that kind of really is the ultimate proof that we are related and we evolved from a common ancestor. And mushrooms have a lot. I always think fungi are really um, under, you know, they're under underappreciated. So I grew some yes. mushrooms recently. Uh, the very nice people at Kew sent me a box of straw that I could grow mushrooms in. And and what is interesting is how efficiently, they're recyclers. That's what they're doing. They're not animals. They're not plants. Even, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm mostly vegan these days. And because I get told off by vegans for occasion, occasionally wearing leather, so am I. I should say I, it's, I have a plant-based diet. Yeah. But actually, I eat fungi. Hmm. So, so plants plus fungi-based diet is what I should say. Um, but but they are really... very interesting because you know you, you have two uh, as an organism. There's two possibilities. You either you either uh, um, you know decompose your food outside your body with with whatever you know with, with acid or whatever, or inside your body. So and, we've got the messy we way inside, and the non-messy and way. And fungi do it outside. <laughs> that's the distinction. But we both eat. I mean, that's the interesting yeah. thing, that fungi yeah. actually do eat things. They're not just, yeah. you know, we sort of think of them growing over things. But they do, they're not plants. They can't photosynthesize. They can't take yeah. their energy directly from the sun. So they're kind of crawling around. And the thing is, that recycling is really important because if, you know, 
as we are finding in our current world, the waste piles up if you don't do something with it. And, you know, our society is only really just working this out. But the fungi, got, I mean, the fungi and the bacteria, that's recycling the planet, right? Dead trees, eggshells. You know. Yeah, and I think if you Google, you'll find that I think the biggest organism is a fungus. Yeah. You know, it extends for like many hundreds of metres through the ground with its little tendrils, you know. The forest somewhere, isn't it, that's got this yeah. fungus underneath yeah. it, which oh, is we're, brilliant. We're, we're obviously, well, there, I, I think, well, there is a, a mycological society, you know, so if you're, if you're a big fan of fungi. So mycology is the study of fungi. That's, that, yeah. that's good. It is mycology, isn't yeah. it? Sometimes, sometimes all the ologies <laughs> get a bit mixed up. I'm always mixing up... Um, entomology and etymology uh, you know insects yeah. and words yes. and I, <laughs> I think I should be able to remember which way around it is and I can't um, so which was you came up with is there one of these sort of little factoids that you came up with first or that you're particularly attached to I came up with about a, more than 100 and so I cut it down to 50 really I mean I, as I say I'm just trying to emphasise what an amazing universe we live in um, do you want me to pick one yeah go on pick well, one well I mean you know I mean, you, you could pick the human race in the volume of a sugar cube. You may have heard that. Uh, it simply it sounds like a terribly bad idea. Be very heavy. I mean, really, very, very really heavy uncomfortable. Sugar cube. But <laughs> I've seen people try and get eight people on a sofa, and that's yes. bad enough, right? Yes. Without any sugar yeah. cubes. <laughs> well, basically, matter is very empty. Atoms are very empty. Uh, when we're at school, we learn that there's a, a nucleus at the centre of an atom, like a sun, around which electrons orbit like planets. But that doesn't really tell you how empty atoms are. I mean, do you remember Tom Stoppard, the playwright, had this fantastic image. He said if the nucleus at the centre of an atom were like the altar at the centre of St Paul's Cathedral, then an electron would be like a moth in the cathedral, you know, one moment by the altar, the next by the dome. But actually, even that doesn't tell you how empty atoms are. And you know, Helen, that, that if I were to tell you as a percentage how much empty spaces there is in an atom, I count it off on my fingers, it's 99.9999999999. So if you were to squeeze... And he really did count it off on his fingers. I did. If you were to (laughs) squeeze all the empty space out of all the atoms and all 7 billion people on Earth, you could fit them in the volume of a sugar cube. And this is not just theoretical. There are objects in the universe, neutron stars, where where this has happened. So uh, a star, a supernova, a massive star blows up. Paradoxically, its core implodes. And it's the implosion (laughs) that drives the explosion. Um, and all the all the empty space is squeezed out of uh, the atoms. So you end up with something about the size of Mount Everest with the mass of the sun. If you could go to a neutron star and dig out a chunk the size of uh, a sugar cube, it would indeed weigh as much as the human race. So that puts that... Uh, who's that woman with the, the you know, um, rolling up your socks and things to put the... Con- Marie Kondo, is it? You know, there's some very fashionable... Um, system at the moment if you want to tidy you know packing things efficiently we're putting her to shame basically yes. the universe can put the, yeah. the, the rolling up your socks thing to shame but the big question of course is why are atoms so empty and of course that's that's where you get into quantum theory because we discovered we've discovered that the, the, the building blocks of matter are have this strange dual character they can behave like localized like little billiard balls but also spread out waves don't even try and get your head around it because it's impossible uh, you know there's no analog in the everyday world and it turns out that the smaller the, the particle the, the smaller its mass the larger its quantum wave and electrons are the the, the smallest uh well apart from neutrinos the smallest particle we know of biggest quantum wave and because the, that those waves need loads and loads and loads of elbow room atoms are empty so there's a really interesting thing there in physics, I think, which is that there was a debate, you know, this idea of wave-particle duality. And most people, even if they don't know anything about quantum physics, will have this vague idea that sometimes things are particles and sometimes they're waves. And actually, that's not true. The answer is that it's actually just that those are the closest two things yes. in our heads that we can understand. And actually, yeah. there's no reason we should 
our heads should be able to deal with this because it's a thing that happens way, way below our perception. And that's okay. And yet people sort of want to, there's this sort of, Hmm. we really want to grasp on being able to visualise it. It's so important for a human. But you can't. And you can't do it. You can't. And that's okay. I think of it as, yeah, that's right. There's the, 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 the... the quantum things are something for which we have no word in our vocabulary and we have nothing to compare them with. But we can see a wave facet and a particle facet. I'm looking at you, Helen, now, and you're, uh, there's, there, there's two walls at 90 degrees behind you. I could see your, if I saw you, if I, all I saw was your shadow on one wall and your shadow on the, the wall at 90 degrees, I wouldn't, and I couldn't perceive you. That's very much like, like what it is with quantum particles. We see a wave shadow and a particle shadow, but the actual thing we can never see or never actually comprehend. Does that worry you? No, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I actually think, why are we so surprised? I mean, we're t- when we talk about atoms, we're talking, you know, 10 million atoms would fit across uh, uh, a full stop at the end of a sentence, you know, laid end to end. Why are we so surprised that the laws that apply on that fantastically small scale are, the, are not the same as the ones in the everyday world. You know, why should we, we be surprised? I mean, the first person who realised uh, that, the, that the fundamental world was very different to the everyday world was James Clerk Maxwell, the, the, the Scottish physicist. And he, had all the, he was trying to understand electricity and magnetism, and he had all these amazing models. You know, he, he thought, well, how, how can a magnet affect a, a piece of metal across empty space? So he thought, well, maybe there were invisible toothed cogs. You know, the magnet turned a cog, which turned another cog and another cog. And eventually he had all these models and he just he just threw them out in despair. And he realised that the fundamental thing is what we call the magnetic field or electric field. And this is a, something that you can describe mathematically, but we have no analogue in our everyday world. And that's proved to be the tr- uh, true in the 20th century. So we know that gravity is the curvature of a, a four-dimensional space, that atoms do all these, you know, they're, they're, they're both waves and particles. And so, I mean... How amazing, you know, we, we evolved on an African plane, you know, I don't know, a million years ago. Uh, our brains evolved to, um, you know, just watch out for, for predators. And, and yet we've, we've discovered this fundamental world, which is so different from our everyday world. Where we the have thing no is, the mathematics predicts it, doesn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the beauty. If you do, you know, and most people don't have the opportunity or the time or the will, I guess, to get down into the math. But I remember being in a lecture in maybe third or fourth year as a third or fourth year physics undergraduate. And I remember um, the mathematics that, where you could derive the electron. And you've got this mm. matrix, and there was the anti-electron. Like mm. if you had, if you could have an electron, you could have an anti-electron, and it came out of the maths. It didn't. Um, if you had come across that maths without ever seeing anti-electrons, yes. you would have you would have had to say, well, they have to be there because this is the way the yeah. maths works. And there, there's this really deep beauty in that. That, and it, That's you, what, what you can do is, is you can predict. Right. That's the new one. The next yes, book. It's called the magicians. It's about the central <laughs> magic of science, which is exactly what oh, you... Oh, so here's an interesting topic, though. Exactly so what how... I want to just... Be, uh, you just talk, you're talking about the Dirac equation. Yes. Did yeah. you know that it's the only equation in Westminster Abbey? Oh, no, I it's didn't. It's inscribed it? on a flagstone in Westminster... The Dirac equation. Yeah. Very close... Which is D-I-R-A-C, for yeah. those who would like to go and look for it. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, uh, and, and Dirac was this uh, physicist who was uh, one of the pioneers of quantum theory. Very logical possibly autistic, you know, very, very, Mr. Spock of physics. And as, as Helen, you are just saying, he plucked this equation out of, basically out of nothing. Which be, is very appropriate. Because he played, <laughs> unlike most physicists, we, I just talked about Maxwell, and Maxwell was, although he was a genius, he was pretty much like all of us. He, he, he tried to see mechanical models of how the world worked, but that wasn't the way Dirac thought at all. He, 
he played with mathematics and he 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 wanted beautiful bits of self-consistent mathematics and he wrote down the Dirac equation uh, in 1928 at Cambridge and as you just said said it's got to be the equation with the most predictions of, of unexpected phenomena of any equation because it predicted that there's a whole universe of antimatter uh, it predicted what we call quantum spin which no one could explain at that time um, but no it's absolutely amazing isn't it this, this 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 magic of science is so magical that you can write down arcane equations on a blackboard and they predict real things in the real world see, I, te- I always have a, a difficulty with, you know, feel free to defend yourself here I don't like the use of the word magic because I think that no. magic by definition is is the thing that you know <laughs> that's that's it's a game or it's it's yeah. sort of fantasy and actually it's the, the most amazing thing is that it's not magic it's, it's magic actually really hard magic. logic does that, is that okay with you? Say that again. It's magic without magic. Magic without magic. <laughs> Does that help? <laughs> I think I, this is something that people are always going to disagree about. I, I think that my problem with calling it magic is that it makes it, it gives you an excuse not to know it. Yeah. It says that's just somebody else's But the interesting world, thing about what we're there. talking about is that it is, it is mysterious. Although everyone's into Harry Potter. You know, or, it is you know, mysterious, <laughs> you know, that you can write down an equation like the Dirac equation, which is just mathematical symbols. It's like hieroglyphics. Right. And it predicts yes. existence of things no one suspected that when you go and look, you find them. And this is so amazing that the physicists themselves cannot quite believe it. So famously, Einstein did not believe in black holes and the Big Bang, both predictions of his own theory. And, and there's many, many cases. I mean, Dirac himself thought that the the positive uh, particle that was predicted by his theory was 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 a proton for a long time. And just time. to be clear about how this works, I mean, for those uh, listeners who don't spend their world, their you know, days in the world of equations, which uh, you know is probably good for many people's sanity. Um, is that the the way this works is that when you write down the equation, there's the sort of extra bits. You can't write down just one bit of it because of the construction. It's like you have to have a two-dimensional object instead of what you have to have some extra bits just to make it that to just for it to exist. And then what happens is that there has to be something in those other parts of the equation. And those are the things we're talking about. That you see the bit that you know is there because it has to be there because that's what mm. you've been looking for. But along with that come these other shapes in the maths, and that's these are yeah. these predictions. That that's we're what happened with Dirac about. because Dirac was trying to describe, and uh, uh, basically he was trying to combine the two great theories of the of the early twentieth century: Einstein's theory of special relativity and quantum theory, which is the theory of which atoms, we still haven't succeeded in doing. <laughs> so he writes down this equation, and he realizes the only way this equation is consistent is if it's duplicated. It has a, so it, it not only describes an electron, but it appears to describe a positively charged electron. Electrons are negative. So yeah, so uh, this is exactly what you're talking about, Helen. There's another bit in there, which, 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 which. I mean, he, you know, and and great physicists of the day, you know, Wolfgang Pauli, Werner Heisenberg, said this is total madness, and that Dirac had gone completely bonkers, and and this was a, a low point in the history of physics. Although I think they all called each other mad at some oh, point in okay. that. Like, I mean, they all. <laughs> it was brilliant because the, the. I mean, that's the only way that field could progress because it was also. Remember, you're coming out the the the, the era of steam engines and Victorian mm. sort of steam engines and things that pushed on a piston and turned a thing and pushed on the other thing. It was all very mechanistic. You could see causality, mm. and you come out of this world of we're going to control everything because the thing is going to push on the thing and turn the thing and do the other thing, and suddenly there's all this fluffy stuff with like you know things that well basically we used to be able to predict things with 100 percent certainty you know we could predict where we throw a ball we can predict exactly where it was going but well quantum theory uh, we gave up on that but the 
because we found that the universe is fundamentally unpredictable. We can only predict uh, a, a certain probability that an electron will take one path between points A and B, and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but, the, but the key thing is the unpredictability is predictable, and yes. that's quantum theory. Yeah. Okay, let's move on from the quiz. We've, done a, we've gone a long way down as a quantum theory thing. So maybe this one is related. I'm just going to pick another little okay. uh, factoid from your book. Um, well, actually, I quite like this one. And I, I think it's probably going to take us away from the quantum. You might tell us otherwise. Um, now, I, I am very much into ocean things, as you probably know. Um, sea squirts and yes. what they do with their brains. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, the juvenile sea squirt, well, this is about... Let's say what sea squirt is to start yeah. with. It's not, they, most people don't meet one on their commute No, well, you can tell me what a sea squirt is because I'm not, I'm, I just know it's a, I just know it's a marine creature. <laughs> Small marine creature, yeah. yeah. You know, this is about uh, brains being um, very rare in, in, in the animal world because they're very uh, fuel hungry, you know. Uh, so the juvenile sea squirt, it, it, it uh, floats around in the ocean trying to find a rock to cling to and make make its home. And when it actually does find a rock and clings to it, it no longer eats its no, no longer needs its brain, so it eats it. So this is just an illustration that, that I mean most creatures on earth do not have brains and even ones that have brains when they when they when they uh, you know have, have used them um, they, they, they get they dispense with them. Actually, I gave a talk about this, and someone asked me a question that I couldn't answer, and they said, "What if the sea squirt gets dislodged from its rock? <laughs> Does it regenerate its brain so that it can find its way back to?" Now, do you know the answer? I Helen? don't know the answer. No. Did you find it out? I don't. I, no, I didn't. But you know, this, so this. I mean, so even with humans, um, I mean, it's incredible. We've Any got, we... sea squirt experts out there who would like to uh, <laughs> tell us whether a dislodged sea squirt regrows its brain, do feel free to tweet at Cosmic Shambles uh, to let us know. But to give you some idea how energy hungry brains are, they they account for about something three like percent of our mass, but they take about twenty percent of our oxygen, twenty percent of our energy. So, pound for pound, they they are ten times as energy hungry as any other part of our our uh, our body. And yet we've got these huge brains, and and you know why? And and one of the reasons is probably we started. Well, you're, you're vegan, but they, we started eating meat, which is a more concentrated source of, of, um, um, yeah, a source of energy. And the other thing is we learnt to cook. Um, so um, you know, a, a frying pan is an external stomach in the same way that paper is an external <laughs> brain. Now, this is how you should think about your cooking from now on. None of that, you know, sort of Mary Berry, nice, tidy sort of tea with a vicar type thinking about food a frying pan is an external stomach yeah so if you if you if you basically outsource your 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 digestion then you don't have to you don't know it, it takes a lot of energy to digest food so you look at like gorillas you know they have huge stomachs and they spend a lot of the day digesting their food but we've outsourced our our uh, cooking some to, of it yeah. yeah some of it and therefore, there's more energy available for, a, for an energy-hungry so brain. So the idea is that once you've cooked something, you've done some of, you've broken down yes, some of the molecules already. Exactly. So whatever's left is easier to digest. Yes. So 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 that we don't know why our brain got so large, but but one reason is a meat diet. Another reason may well be that we outsourced, uh, you know. Uh, fr it's like the ultimate laziness, yes. isn't it? I can't be yeah. bothered to digest my dinner, so I'm going to cook it. But one thing we I should tell you about brains is that they are shrinking. So 30,000 years ago, people had brains which were about 10% bigger than they are today. They were also about 10% taller than we are today. 
Well, there is a so brain size is one that has been very controversial in history, hasn't it? Because there were people that thought that brain size was representative yeah. of intelligence, and that's been shown to be nonsense, and very, you know, various other things. People have tried to make these simple comparisons. So, you know, elephants, for example, have quite big brains, mm. but then they're quite big animals. So, but but you but as humans have changed shape and size, our brains have also changed. I think size, the people thirty thousand years ago lived in a, in a in a much more dangerous world. You know, they had to there were predators. They had to find their own food. We have domesticated ourselves. I mean, and every whenever you see a domesticated animal, it is smaller than the wild version. So, you know, when we domesticated uh, oxen or whatever, they're always smaller. Uh, we didn't. We didn't. We go through a period of uh, breeding them to be bigger, though. That sort of, you know, sixteenth or seventeenth seventeenth century, possibly, right? Yeah. There were a load of yeah. all those pictures in the, you know, various art galleries now where there's these unreasonably large cows and pigs there's a really yeah. famous pig isn't there that's just they bred it when they just sort of thought about instead of hmm. just leaving evolution to it we're going to actually consistently try and breed things and, and the pigs got bigger well <laughs> but mostly they got smaller and and that is because uh they're dependent and you know, they don't have to get i mean we do not i don't grow my own food i don't make my own clothing and of course, the people 30,000 years ago did. Uh, this has all been outsourced, so I have to do less. So we, we, we're getting smaller and we, we've, we've domesticated ourselves. Um, and again, well, not it, it could be that our brains are better rewired because as you, as you just pointed out, there isn't any correlation between brain size and intelligence. There's a factor of almost two. in, in diff- I think George Bernard Shaw had a brain which was, which was really large, like 2,000 cc. But you can go down to about 1,000 cc before you actually have any uh, impairment. Or you can go down to the C-squirt, which presumably it doesn't have. It is a zero on both scales. No brain, because it's decided to settle down. And um, presumably not very much intelligence. Anyway, so so apart from... OK, so we've, we've, we've covered all the... I mean, the book is the infinity in the palm of your hand, full of all these bits and pieces. Let's just move away from your book and talk about other books for yeah. a second. So what what do you, do you ever read other science books? Or are you so busy writing your own that you never get to reading it's anyone else's? It's a terrible else's? thing to say, but I, don't, I never read science right. books. <laughs> Do you read other types of books? I read lots of novels. Ah. Yeah, I, I read loads of fiction, um, um, but I don't read. I don't read. Do you read popular science? Uh, yeah, bits of it. Uh, okay. Yes, I do read quite a lot, and I read uh, and then science fiction a little bit because yeah. like, the, the ideas stuff like Cory Doctorow yeah. and stuff like that. Well, I've written two, really I wrote two science ideas. fiction novels uh, years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But Along the, with the others, you've forgotten writing. Um, so no. what, what sort of novels do you read? Do you Pardon? read what sort of novels do you read? Well, I mean, um, I'm just just going to a, a, a party at my my publishers, and I want to meet Ema Ema McBride. She wrote a fantastic novel called uh, The Lesser Bohemians, which is almost like Stream of Consciousness. It's a great title, isn't it? The Lesser yeah. Bohemians. That's such a bit. You know, we have. The snobbery in the bohemian world. We have the good, the superior <laughs> bohemians and the, you know, the lesser bohemians. Also quite like the sort of um, animal species, you know, the lesser spotted widget yeah. or something. <laughs> anyway, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. And she is such a talent. She's from Dublin and she has her own style. Almost like, I don't know, James Joyce used to write almost Stream of Consciousness. So you have to get your ear in. But it's beautifully written, and she she's very very good, you know. So I hope I can meet her this evening. I'll be I'll be very intimidated, you know. But <laughs> also, I mean, uh, it's actually I, I noticed on Twitter someone who follows me is Elizabeth Knox, and she's a New Zealand novelist. And I think it's the twentieth anniversary of of this wonderful book called um, the Vintner's Luck. I don't know if you've ever read it. I don't think I've it's heard of that. So no. fantastic! It's a a love triangle between a woman, a bisexual man, and an angel 
in early 19th century Burgundy. That sounds extremely complicated. And it's one of the most shocking <laughs> books you'll, you'll read. You know, it, beautifully okay. written, but very, very shocking. And it was Vintler's, what's it called? The Vintler's Luck. So uh, this, this, this angel appears in this vineyard every, every year, the same day, and he has a glass of wine with this uh, Vintner. And the Vintner goes off and fights in the Napoleonic Wars, and he goes old, but the angel doesn't grow old. And anyway, so it's it's a heartbreaking story, and it's the only novel that I've actually been moved to write a, 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 a review on Amazon for. Oh right, that's and a high, high praise these days, I do, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I do Twitter, and I'm, I'm a bit into social media. And one day, a few years ago, Elizabeth Knox followed me on Twitter, and it, it really made my day. I mean, I thought, <laughs> why has she followed me? <laughs> Uh, I've since met her and she's lovely. I, I, was, I thought she would be very scary, but actually she's not. She lives in Wellington in, in New Zealand, but uh, she writes science fiction as well. Everyone, everyone writes everything, apparently. I always find <laughs> being followed by things... The, the, the strangest things to be followed by are when it's something like a public library and it's kind of like Doncaster Library. I don't think they follow me. But anyway, it says Doncaster Library is following you and it gives us this idea that this sort of very large building is creeping round after you in your daily life. And it all, I always find it slightly disconcerting. Oh. Well, I always find it amazing. I'm now, I've just reconnected with someone who was at school with me when I was five. Uh, it's just amazing these connections that, that, that are happening now that would never have happened in maybe previous generations, you know. Uh, so you get to meet these people you haven't seen for so many decades, you know. So I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a weird world, isn't it? It's great. I love the... Uh, yes, it's all of this that's predictable but not predictable at the same time. It's just uh, life is more fun when it's not predictable. So these connections are brilliant. Right, we, I think we've got to the... We have, so we've been talking um, about Marcus Chown's book, Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, which has any... You will be quoting these things at the pub for a very long time, particularly the thing about the third mushroom, I think. Um, so if you would like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can do that for as little as $1 a month. Um, and there are, if you look at the Cosmic Shambles website, there. Are, if you're a Patreon supporter, this is on Patreon, there are extended episodes and behind the scenes things. What is brilliant is that in Trent's handwriting, it looks like there are behind the scones. So there may well be episodes behind the scones, but I think it's behind the scenes um, and various other goodies. So if you're keen to become a Patreon supporter for the Cosmic Shambles Network, uh, which allows us to keep doing all of this, uh, please go to patreon.com slash book slash book shambles um, and if you're still keen on all the cosmic shambles stuff and you want even more of it patreon supporter or not uh, you can go to cosmicshambles.com for blogs and videos and podcasts and live events and all sorts of fun stuff um, and a shop which has merchandise um, and then of course it's the summer there's lots of live events going on and some of them um you tickets are on sale for now so that is book shambles which is july the 7th at the albert hall and robert and josie will uh, robin and josie will be there with special guests and one of the special guests is reginald d hunter so definitely get your ticket for that have a look at who the other guests are um we will be at latitude and blue dot and robin will be back from tour hopefully having not punched brian in the face too many times uh he'll be at the soho theater in july and on tour in november thank you very much for listening and if you would like to hear more about Emma McBride and Lesser Bohemians, she was actually on Book Shambles a little while ago. So if you go to the Cosmic Shambles Network and look back through past episodes of Book Shambles, not Science Shambles, um, you'll be able to look that up. Yes, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with another new episode of Science Shambles very soon. Hope to see you at the Royal Institution tonight, or perhaps in a couple of weeks. Or perhaps at the Albert Hall on July 7th with Robin Josie and Reg. Until then, have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.